0: Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice.
1: Welcome to the Mad in America podcast. I'm Anna Florence, postdoctoral associate at the Yale Program for Recovery and Community Health and a science writer for Mad in America. Today, I'm very excited to sit down with Dr. Michelle Funk for an interview about her life, her career, and her role as unit head Policy, Law, and Human Rights at the Department of Mental Health and Substance Use at the WHO. Michelle obtained her PhD in Public Health at the University of Sydney and has worked in different capacities at the WHO since 2000. Michelle has created and leads the WHO Quality Rights Initiative, which works with country to transform their mental health services to ensure quality and promote human rights, build the capacity of all relevant stakeholders to understand and promote the human rights of people with psychosocial, cognitive, and intellectual disabilities, to assess and improve quality and human rights standards of existing services and supports, empower and strengthen civil society movements to advocate for rights-based approaches in mental health and related areas, and promote sustainable change through policy and law reform, which uphold international human rights standards. In particular, the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Today, we'll talk about the guidance on rights-based community mental health services that was launched on June 10th, 2021. Welcome, Michelle. I wanted to start by talking a little bit about your career. How did you decide to work in public health and global health? Well,
0: first of all, thanks, Anna, for inviting me to this podcast. Um, My education throughout university was in psychology and public health. My master's, in fact, was a specialised degree in clinical psychology, and my doctorate thesis was on cardiovascular disease risk prevention strategies, so very much a focus on public health and global health. Um, then following my university studies, I led a large WHO multi-country research study on early intervention for hazardous alcohol consumption, which was really what brought me in contact with the World Health Organization. And in fact, it was through this study that I was invited to join the WHO and also to expand this work to mental health.
1: That's fascinating. And that brings me to my next question of how does your work look like? What does a day in Michelle Funk's uh, life look like?
0: Well, uh, in my work, I have global responsibility for supporting countries to develop their policies and laws on mental health. And this requires several steps, so closely reviewing what has been done to date and what is having good results as well as what is not having uh, good results in countries. Um, It also involves ensuring that the guidance is in line with international human rights standards. It means closely consulting with a full range of stakeholders, including organisations of persons with disabilities individuals with lived experience, mental health professionals, civil society organisations, um, policymakers, and many others. And then the huge task then is really to pull all this information together in easily understandable, digestible guidance that's really sensitive to the diverse socio-economic context that countries um, face, and, of course, the different levels of development of countries' health systems.
1: That sounds like you do a lot of different things, which is exciting, but also sounds a bit overwhelming. What are the things you're most interested in in your work, and what are the things you're proud of doing uh, during your career? Could you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Sure. In my position, uh, I've seen just how many people are living through so many bad, difficult, and disempowering situations in the mental health services. So. To be able to help change this situation is something that's been very important to me and the fact that I think that this is now happening makes me proud. So basically, I think I'm most proud of having contributed to a new direction for mental health, which is a rights-based approach that puts people using services, people with mental health conditions and psychosocial disabilities first in the whole mental health story And here, what's really important is um, that people's preferences need to be respected, that their views count and are primary. So, the other point around that is that when people know their voice is being heard um, and that their voice counts within the, the World Health Organization, it really empowers people Um, who are so often not listened to or heard concerning the issues that affect them the most. So that's been something that's been extremely important in the work that I do to make all of that happen. Um, I'm also proud that over the years, through the work that we've developed, I've been able to bring many stakeholders to the table to get behind this Work, many who were previously reluctant, several, you know, for the last several years, five years ago. So, um, this is really encouraging and brings a lot of optimism about change being possible and change already happening.
1: Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And your ability to put all these stakeholders together in the same room and um, negotiate how to move forward, that's really fascinating. Um, I wonder if we could move on to the new guidance document uh, that was published in June 10th. What was the process of developing it? So,
0: first of all, let me explain just a little bit about that WHO guidance. So, it's the World Health Organization's new guidance for countries on how to put in place person-centered and rights-based community mental health services. So within this guidance, we highlight good practice services from around the world that align with key human rights criteria grounded in the convention on the rights of persons with disabilities, including respect for legal capacity, non-coercive practices, participation, and community inclusion. And this guidance is also providing detailed information on how each of the services showcase explicitly implements these CRPD criteria in the setup and running of the service. So, I'd like to just say that this this guidance is the first of its kind. So, it's going to be extremely important and um, it has been many years in the making as well. So in terms of process, uh, it's involved many months of intensive research and many rounds of in-depth consultations with all key stakeholder groups and experts in countries throughout the world. So that includes research and consultations about all the different types of services that are out there and being run in different countries, as well as um, consultations for, you know, reviewing and commenting on drafts and and helping with the revisions of the different drafts into what we have, you know, today in in terms of the final technical guidance.
1: That sounds like a lot of work and it is a fascinating document and it seems to be something entirely new and one of a kind, um, and I think that the mental health community is going to really like it. One of the a very interesting pieces of this new document, the guidance document, is the connection between human rights and recovery. That connection is not obvious in many places, including in the United States. Could you tell us about why it is important to combine those two frameworks?
0: Yes, I can, and it's actually an extremely good quest, you know good question to ask, and it's not so obvious for everyone. So it's really important to combine the frameworks um, because the human rights approach and the recovery approach share common values and principles. So both these approaches um, are promoting key rights such as equality. Non-discrimination, legal capacity, informed consent and community inclusion. The main difference, though, between the human rights and recovery-based approaches is that the human rights approach imposes obligations on countries to promote these rights. But you know, more specifically, why is it important to put these frameworks together? You know, which is the key. It's important. Um, In order to show their alignment with each other, which in effect is going to bring more synergy and a more powerful voice to advocate and implement change, the recovery framework has its own constituency that may not understand the language of human rights and vice versa. The human rights constituency may not understand the language of recovery So by incorporating both frameworks and showing how their line can bring these important groups of constituencies um, together on common grounds and for a common purpose.
1: I truly appreciate that. And I think this is going to be welcomed by both communities um, and hopefully create opportunity to work together. So, Michelle, I'm curious, the Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health, Tenius Pudas, was interviewed by me as well, and you talk about a paradigm shift that he proposed. How important was that for the development of the guidance? Well, the paradigm shift from a
0: biomedical model to a human rights model is actually the basis of the new WHO Community Mental Health Service Guidance including of course the services showcased and the recommendations made. All of the services are united by several features and these include the right to legal capacity, in other words the right to make decisions on all aspects of one's life, Um, secondly the freedom from coercive practices such as forced treatment seclusion and restraint, thirdly participation, meaning that people with lived experience are running services or have a key role in deciding how a service is designed and run and, uh, fourth, community inclusion. And this means that the support that people are given to access social welfare services and benefits, housing, employment and educational opportunities, which will ultimately allow people to live and be included in the community, So, you know, this is the new paradigm, this is the new human rights um, model and paradigm which permeates everything, you know, we are promoting in this new guidance on community mental health services.
1: There's been another issue that I think is relevant to this document. Um, There's been criticism around the Western dominance of the global mental health Arena, how did the guidance deal with that?
0: Well, we looked for good practice, right space services from around the world in all regions. We also sought inputs from all stakeholders around the world, including the global south. But having said that, for sure, you know, there is a limiting factor, and that limiting factor was um around the fact that we needed to select good practices that had evaluation outcomes. And this tended to buy selection in the direction of high-income countries where there were, you know, where there were more funds to complete evaluations. However, at the same time, you know, we really did our best to compensate for this. Bias in order to get geographic representation of the services and also representation from low, middle, and high-income countries.
1: Yeah, the issue of research, evaluation, and funding is so massive in the global south. And coming from Brazil, I've lived, um, I've lived experience with that. I should say, mm-hmm. and so it's much appreciated that the guidance found ways around that and managed to include several examples of good practices in the global south. So, in a sense, I guess the the guidance really seems ahead of its time, uh, especially considering where mainstream psychiatry currently is and the dominance of the biomedical model. With that in mind, what what was most challenging about developing this document?
0: What was most challenging was to find good practices that truly aligned with the human rights criteria of the CRPD, um, as well. The additional layer on top of all that was to find those types of services that also had an evaluation. So, as you mentioned, the majority of services in the mainstream don't meet these criteria, in particular the CRPD criteria. And actually, there are so few services out there who actually are evaluating what they're doing. You know, so that was uh, particularly challenging. Uh, and really points to the need to invest in rights-based services like the ones we describe in the WHO guidance and to evaluate them and to compare costs and outcomes with the mainstream services, which is actually what we do in the guidance document.
1: That's very interesting. And hopefully the guidance will have an impact in the way services are funded and the way research is conducted. Um, So I'm already seeing many ways this can uh, help us move forward. I wonder if moving back to a more general idea of your entire work, um, what do you find most rewarding in what you do?
0: What is most rewarding for me is um, really uh, collaborating with people who have lived experience, learning from them, and being able to integrate that learning into my work you know, seeing, hearing and reading of so many people who are truly appreciative of the work being done has, you know, also been incredibly rewarding. And, uh, you know, in that context, we've had many people reaching out to us, for example, to thank the World Health Organization for this work. We've heard people say that the work has completely changed their perspective, that their practices have changed now, or that before receiving the training through the Quality Rights Initiative, they did not know the harm that they'd caused people, nor that they could do things differently. So hearing so many comments like that every day has made the work and the struggles to complete it really worthwhile and rewarding. To know that what we set out to do We are achieving and we're getting that feedback um, to say that, yeah, it's happening.
1: Wonderful. And what about the most disappointing things that you face? Change is not fast enough and that's really disappointing. Yeah, I certainly share that. (laughs) And then another question would be, what, what was most surprising or what continues to surprise you in your day to day? It was surprising to see
0: just how many people, groups and organisations there are out there who want this change to happen. In you know the last couple of years or so, I sense there has been a shift, a groundswell of people from all areas and disciplines and movements increasingly calling for significant change in mental health and calling for full alignment of policies, laws, and services with the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and for an end to the coercion that we're seeing in, in mental health. I think this movement is growing in confidence and gaining in momentum and resulting in an increasing number of countries exploring in earnest how they can create better and more responsive human rights oriented services and a system, so yeah, I mean, again, what the su- surprising aspect of that is that there are a lot more people out there who want this change to happen than we somehow believe there are. So, when you're working in sort of a little bit of a you know, sometimes you're in your own environment with you know, your own stakeholder groups around you, you sometimes forget that there's a whole other world out there in countries on the ground in the community who are just desperate for this change to happen so it's nice to see that
1: that's refreshing to hear michelle um i guess we should all share this excitement about the possibility of change and likely the fact that your work is so connected to everything that's happening on the ground must help uh retaining that that sense so if folks didn't know what the WHO is, um, now they certainly do. It's been on the media daily. And the COVID pandemic really brought this, the importance of this work um, to the front. There's also been talk about how COVID-19 is impacting people's mental health. And a lot of the talk has been around a potential epidemic of mental illness following the COVID-19 pandemic. How can we ensure a focus on human rights and social determinants in this time, um, especially with this type of attention to mental health that COVID has brought?
0: Well, first of all, I mean, it might be interesting to just look at the types of problems um, and the mental health issues related to COVID in order to better understand, you know, we can best address um, mental health in this context. Um, COVID, as you said, COVID nineteen has raised some really important issues around mental health and and how it can be negatively affected. And I just want to run through some of some of the key issues. So there's a fear, worry, and stress of infection and dying, losing family members, um, as well as the loss of income and livelihoods. And this has been you know, hugely significant and increasing distress, anxiety and other mental health issues. We also have uh, some important um, impacts on people who've had pre-existing mental health conditions. So sometimes the stress has amplified their um, distress and mental health condition. We've seen how stigma and Discrimination creates uh, isolation for people who have mental health-related um, uh, conditions and disabilities, and this is um, amplified, you know, during the COVID lockdown when they're being cut off from normal routines and activities, and having the effect of, you know, becoming even more isolated and, and distressed um we've seen also how lockdown has cut many people off from critical services and supports that they were receiving prior to the pandemic and we've also seen some you know horrific um, impacts in institutional settings such as psychiatric, hospitals and social care homes where people have been really disproportionately affected by COVID, many people dying, um, also many, many people, particularly older people who are residing in homes have really been cut off from their families, their loved ones, which has resulted in a huge emotional toll. I thought it's important to highlight all those aspects, the mental health aspects of COVID-19, because it really reinforces the critical role of social determinants of health and the need for a human rights-based approach that focuses on these social aspects rather than conceptualizing mental health issues as an illness. So um, mental health services and supports and interventions need to engage with these important life issues in order to truly address mental health issues. So it's you know, the, the social determinants of health and their role have really come to the forefront during the COVID-19 pandemic, but they were always there. It's just now that it's, you know, in it's more in people's um, awareness and attention. And we need to seize that opportunity to make sure that these are the critical issues that are addressed in mental health services, in mental health systems going forward.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I guess the issues were already there, but now they're really so obvious it's becoming very hard to ignore. I wonder if with that in mind, um, the fact that these things are so obvious right now, are you optimistic about some change coming and it going in the right direction? Definitely. And
0: you may have picked that up already from my previous responses. So absolutely, I'm optimistic about change coming. I think it's actually started. I think it is going to continue. There are many groups now who are demanding a sea change, uh, you know, real transformation of the mental health agenda.
1: Wonderful. And I'm curious to know, what's next for you for Michelle after the (laughs) guidance document? Yeah, there's a lot coming. We haven't finished our work yet. Um, We've already started
0: work on new guidance around mental health-related laws and policy that comply with the human rights standards of the um, CRPD on the convention that I've already mentioned. And there's been uh, a lot of demand Uh, for this from countries. So that's really good news. Uh, So we're really keen to uh, develop this guidance, finalise it, and really to make that available to countries so they can develop new policy and legal frameworks to complement the rights-based services guidance that we've just launched, as well as our earlier work with um, the quality rights training materials to promote attitudinal and practice change in line with the human rights-based approach.
1: That's really exciting. So, Michelle, thank you so much. I wish you the best of luck with the important work that you do. Thank you for joining us today and sharing some of your history and thoughts about mental health and your work with the World Health Organization. It's been great to have you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Mad in America podcast. Visit madinamerica.com for more news, views and updates.